Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Jude, starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Let me pray. Father God, I just pray that you would anoint this time in your word, that you would clear away distractions in all of our minds and our hearts and help us to hear your voice as you speak to us through your word this morning. And I pray, God, that you would um, just do a work in us, um, strengthen us in the faith, God, as we hear from you this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let me give you a quick kind of recap, catch you up. We've, we've only covered the first four verses so far, and this is week five, so we're averaging about a verse a week, and uh, I'm not sure we're going to do much better than that, but uh, some weeks we tackle two verses, and, uh, you know, we get crazy with it and just go two verses in one week. Wow. Uh, so it's cool. The, the goal is not to actually speed through the book. The goal is, like we said at the beginning of the series, to actually slow down, take our time, and examine every tree and every branch and every leaf. And, uh, and so that's what we're doing. We're really soaking the sin, taking our time in this. Um, in the first two verses, we have Jude's introduction. And in verse one, he introduces himself as Jude, which was short for Judas. Um, and he introduces himself as the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And we talked about how it was important that he identified himself that way, even though we learned that he is the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. And so his primary identity, even though he could have name dropped and said, hey, I'm the half brother of Jesus, you better listen to me. He says, I'm Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. And then he talks about who he's writing to. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And those three words are loaded, called, beloved, and kept. And this is a letter for Christians. This is a letter from a believer to believers. And, uh, and if you are in Christ, you are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, he launches into this beautiful benediction, this blessing that he speaks over them. And he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you in abundance. That is more than we need. Mercy, peace, and love. And then last week, we... We jumped into verses three and four. And I think in verses three and four, we get to kind of the crux, the heart, the point, the main points 
of Jude's letter, the main reason that he's writing. He actually says, hey, guys, I was eager and anxious to write to you about something else. I wanted to write to you something else, but I was compressed. We learned that the Holy Spirit just moved upon Jude to write what was written here. He said, I wanted to write to you about just a, you know, a basic letter probably about our common salvation. But I found it necessary. And that language was, I was compressed. I was pressured. There was, I was moved upon with strong force to write to you. Why? He says, to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, because certain people have crept in unnoticed and they're perverting the truth of God's word. They're turning it into a license for sensuality. They're saying, oh, the grace of God, so sin in this area doesn't matter. And we definitely see that happening um, in our day. And what we learn from verses three and four is three things that we talked about last week. Number one, that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's not talking about contend for your personal feeling of faith. He says contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's a faith once for all delivered to the saints. And number two, the faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. He says certain people have crept in unnoticed. These weren't people who were saying, hey, I'm a non-Christian or I'm an atheist or I'm against God. They were saying, hey, no, I'm just like you, I'm Christian. And they were just introducing false teachings about God. They crept in among us. So there's a faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. And And the theme of this letter is point number three from last week. We must contend for the faith then. If there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, and it's been delivered to us, and it's our job to deliver it to the next generation faithfully, to ensure that that the faith that we pass on is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to do that, we must contend for the faith, even though it's repeatedly threatened from within the church. And so that's what happened last week. And now that's the main theme of the letter. He's going to spend the rest of the letter, the bulk of the rest of the letter, giving us examples of people in the Old Testament who abandoned the faith. And he's going to compare them to those who are infiltrating the church and spreading false ideas about God and corrupting other people's faith in the modern day. And so beginning in verse 5, Jude launches into seven Old Testament examples of people who abandoned the faith. And he uses those as an example and warning for us. William Barclay, in his commentary, says this. To understand the first two examples which Jude cites from history, we must understand one thing. The evil people who were corrupting the church did not regard themselves as enemies of the church and of Christianity. They regarded themselves as the advanced thinkers, a cut above the ordinary Christian, the spiritual elite. Jude chooses his examples to make clear that even if people have received the greatest privileges, they may still fall away into disaster. So today we're going to look at the first of those examples, and we find it there in verse 5. He says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's heavy. It's interesting to me that he's actually referring to an event that takes place in the book of Exodus, okay? We're going to talk about the history of this. We're going to give you some background. But it says that Jesus saved them out of Egypt and later destroyed those who didn't believe. 
That's interesting because we don't know, the New, the New Testament is the first time we know that the Messiah's name is Jesus. That is, Jesus is the Christ. Right? But here it says everything you're reading about. Now the scriptures say this over and over again. I just want to draw your, your attention to that point again. That the Old Testament is all about Jesus too. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So though, though we don't have the name of Jesus spoken in the Old Testament, it's all about him. It's been said that the Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. We know who the Christ is, who the Messiah is. And this verse, written by Jude, says that I want to remind you that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And later... Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude's first example is from the history of the Israelites, from the history of Israel. And to see what he's referring to, I want you to flip in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. That's in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. We're going to flip back to the story that Jude is referring to here. Because this is where Jude is pointing us. He says, remember this, guys. Remember that Jesus saved them out of slavery in Egypt and then afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's heavy. So before we actually dive into the specific verses that are here, because I can't just read for you. We could, but, you know, time permitting this morning, we're not going to read the entirety of, of chapters 13 and 14. <clears throat> so let me give you a little bit of background and kind of summarize what's here, and then we'll kind of look at some specific verses. Let me explain. What he's talking about is that, is that for generations, the Israelites, the, the chosen people of God, had been slaves in Egypt. Brutal slavery for generations. And the Exodus tells the story, the book of Exodus tells the story of, of how the mighty hand of God delivered them out of slavery. Okay? He sent Moses to lead them out of slavery. He sent 10 plagues on Pharaoh and on the land to demonstrate his glory and power and to show that I am the God over all of your false gods. It's an interesting study. I've taught on this before and maybe I'll teach on it again, but I believe that every one of the 10 plagues that God sent was a direct affront to one of the 10 false gods of the Egyptians. So when he sends darkness on the land, I believe that's a direct affront to the sun god that they worshiped. Oh, you worship the God of the sun? Darkness on the land. I'm the true God. You worship a God with the head of a frog? Here comes frogs as a plague upon your land. I, I believe that every one of those plagues was a direct affront to one of the false gods of the Egyptians. And so he sends Moses to deliver them. He sends 10 plagues upon the land to show his power and glory that he is the true God. I want you to imagine you're an Israelite that's experiencing this. You've been in slavery your whole life. And then God sends a man named Moses and he starts saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. God is, is leading us to himself. He's giving us a land that he's promised to give us. Let us go. And Pharaoh says no. And he says, all right, if you don't let us go, then our God is the true God. And he's going to send some plagues on the land. He's going to demonstrate his power until you let us go. Pharaoh's like, bring it. And God brings it. So delivers them. And as they're being delivered, finally, even after that 10th plague, they go. And, and they're, they're trapped now with the, the armies of Pharaoh behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. And that famous story, the famous scene in the scriptures where God parts the Red Sea so they can walk through on dry ground. And as they get across to safety, the sea swallows up Pharaoh 
and his armies. And now, they've been through all of that. Imagine you're an Israelite. You've been in slavery. You've seen all of these plagues. You were trapped at the Red Sea and watched it part by the hand of God. And you've been delivered across to the other side. And now you've been brought safely across the desert to the very borders of the land that God has promised to give you. So God brings them faithfully and safely across the desert to the borders of the promised land. They're in a place called Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. Now God had promised to give them this land that they were about to possess. And just before they went in to take it, they sent spies in to check out the land and to bring back a report to the people. They sent 12 spies one from each of the tribes of Israel. So there were 12 tribes of the people of Israel. They sent one man from each tribe in to spy out the land that God had promised, I'm giving you this land. They sent 12 men in to spy out the land. And the spies spent 40 days going all throughout the land, checking it out, and they saw that it was an amazing and fruitful land. And they, they even cut a cluster of grapes, the scripture tells us. They cut a cluster of grapes so big that they had to carry it back between them on a pole, like so heavy. The land, this idea is the land is fruitful. This land that God has promised to give us is a fruitful place. And then the spies, the 12 spies come back to Moses and the people of Israel, and they basically say this. The land is amazing, just as advertised. It flows with milk and honey. It is beautiful and fruitful and rich with natural resources. But there are tons of people and they are huge and strong. They're bigger than we are and they're stronger than we are and their cities are large and they're well fortified and guys, we're just not able to go against them. There is no way that we can possess this land. It's not going to happen. Imagine you're an Israelite who has seen God do all of that and brought you safely across to the very borders of the land that God himself has promised to give to you. And you send in spies and they come back with that report. Your heart would sink. Only two people out of the 12 tried to convince them that they could do it. Caleb and Joshua. And they basically said this. Listen, God promised to bring us into this land and he'll do it. Don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people. God will bring us into this land and give it to us just as he said he would. But the people believed the report of the other 10 spies and they became incredibly discouraged and they started complaining against Moses and they started complaining against God they believed the word of the spies over the word of God. And as a consequence, God said that all of the men over 20 years old who grumbled against him, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, would never enter the promised land, but would wander in the wilderness until they were dead because they did not believe him because they didn't believe his word. And the generation after them would possess the land. And Jude points to this as an example of what was happening in the church. So he says, certain people have crept into the church and they're speaking things that are contrary to God's word. And so let me remind you guys that although these people had been delivered and seen the great miraculous deliverance 
of the hand of God out of slavery in Egypt, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, faithfully bringing them across the wilderness to the very borders of the land that he promised to give them when they slipped into unbelief and rebelled against his word and rejected it and did not believe that God was able to do what he promised he would do. They were co-scientists wonder the desert, the wilderness, on the very borders of the promised land until they passed away. So Jude points to this as an example of what was happening in the church. And so let's take this example. Let's look at it a little bit closer. And as we do, I want to point out quickly four things about unbelief. Four things about unbelief. Number one, unbelief is focused on self. Unbelief is focused on self. Let's read Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 through 33. It says, At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation. And they showed them the fruit of the land. And they, and they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Verse 28 right here, here's where things go wrong. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Now listen, God had said that he was giving them the land. He had promised, I am giving you this land. But all they could do was list the reasons why they couldn't do it or weren't able to possess the land. Now, here's the kicker. None of their reasons were wrong or inaccurate. They weren't lying when they said the people were bigger and stronger than them. The people were bigger and stronger than them. They weren't lying when they said the cities were huge and well fortified. The cities were huge and well fortified. But none of that changed the fact that God was able to give it to them. The problem was they were looking at themselves and comparing the giants they saw in the land to themselves instead of comparing the giants in the land to their God. They were never asked to believe in their own ability to conquer the land, but in God's ability to give it to them. Do you see that? That's, that's the important thing that's happening here. That's the faith element. That's the unbelief. They started to, to have disbelief when they were looking at themselves and their own abilities or lack of abilities and limitations and lack of resources. When they looked at themselves and compared themselves to the problem at hand, that's where unbelief crept in. Why not look at the problem 
and compare the problem to your God. And so I, I've, I've heard this said, you know, stop telling God how big your problem is and start telling your problem how big your God is. It's a really important mental shift to make. We look at our problems and we magnify our problems. And scripture says, magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord. What is magnify? I mean, imagine picking up a magnifying glass. Whatever you're looking at, it's bigger. You, just, you, you see it. For what? Now listen, with God, we don't have to make him bigger. What we need to do is see him for, for the big God that he is. That's why scripture says magnify the Lord in your thoughts and in your mind, in your hearts, in your lives. Magnify the Lord and stop magnifying your problems. Stop magnifying your issues and telling, telling God how big your problems are as if, he, as if he's stressed out by them. Oh God, look at the size of this bill or look at the size of this thing or look at the size of this crisis. And God's like, not that God doesn't care. Of course he cares. But we, we bring it to God like, like even God can't do something about it. And so I kind of like that saying. Stop telling God how big your problem is and start telling your problem how big your God is. They were comparing the giants of the land to themselves instead of comparing the giants of the land to their God. No, they were not able to possess the land. But God was well able to give it to them. Because they were focused on themselves and their own ability, they began to doubt and question and then contradict God's word. Even though God had promised to give it to them, they said, we can't have it. That's not going to happen. God said, I'm taking you to that land. And they said, no, no, we're not going into that land. They start contradicting the promise of God. And they caused that unbelief and that doubt to spread among all the people. So here's a quick question for self-evaluation for all of us. And man, this shot my heart like an arrow this week. Is there an area of your life where you are more focused on yourself or your problems or your ability or limitations than you are on God's word of promise? Is there an area where a focus on self has caused you to doubt or even begin to contradict God's word to you or about you or about a circumstance or situation? Unbelief is focused on self. When you look at yourself, of course you will start to disbelieve the promises of God because the things that God speaks over you and about you are not something that you can accomplish or I can accomplish in our own strength. So if you look to your ability to do what only God can do, of course you'll start to disbelieve. Look to God and his ability. Number two, Unbelief is rooted in fear. Unbelief is rooted in fear. Let me read to you Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. After this report, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey for them. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Listen to them. They're saying, Slavery was better. Ah, oh, we're going to die in this land, and our children are going to become prey. Why did God bring us here to kill us? I've said that. This is challenged. Why did God call me to this? 
just to, just to kill me? Why did he bring me here? Just to slay me? Man, this was convicting when I read this this week. Why did God give me this path or this direction or this calling or this road Why, just, just, to, just to kill me? Whew. Look at what's going to happen. This is going to happen. You see the fear in this? Oh, we're going to die by the sword and our wives and our children are going to become prey. It was better for us than slavery in Egypt. And then they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. You hear them? Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and circle these three words. Do not fear the people of the land. Do not fear. For they are bread for us. You know what he's saying? He's saying the thing that you're fearing will actually be your provision. God will cause the thing that you're afraid of to actually provide for you. He says they're bread for us. They're not something that's going to tear us down. God's going to use them to provide to feed us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see that? There's that phrase again. Do not fear. Do not fear. So the people were operating in fear. Their unbelief is because they were focused on themselves, and when they started focusing on themselves, they started operating in fear. Right? And in the scriptures, it's amazing how many times fear is often contrasted with faith. Don't be afraid, only have faith. Or have faith, don't be afraid. Or why do you fear, oh you of little faith? Fear and faith are often contrasted with one another in the scriptures because fear is, I think in some ways, a form of faith. It's just negative faith. It's faith in the negative possibilities. We're going to fall by the sword. Our wives and little ones will become prey. We're going to lose the house. This relationship can never be restored. What is the fear? That's faith. That's just that's faith in an outcome that's not certain, but you believe it. You're putting all your energy in believing something that hasn't happened yet. Instead of meditating on the promises of God, they were dwelling on the negative possibilities. Rick Warren said this. If you know how to worry, you already know how to meditate. Worry is focused thinking on something negative. Meditation is doing the same thing, only focusing on God's word instead of your problem. So worry is a form of meditation. It's meditating on the negative possibilities. And in that way, it's a, it's a form of negative faith. I have faith that what's going to happen to me is bad. Caleb and Joshua were focused on God's word of promise, and so they were able to walk in faith instead of fear. Look at Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And even there in, in 14, verses 6 through 8, Caleb and Joshua said, the land which we pass through to spy it out, it's an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights us, look at this, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. You hear the faith? He will do it, guys. He's promised to do it, and he's going to do it. They're speaking in faith the other, while the others are speaking in fear. 
It says the protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us, guys. Don't fear them. And so here's the reality, is that you can either live your life driven by faith or ruled by fear. And fear is a prison. It's debilitating. It keeps you from living and from following God wholeheartedly. I know it. I've walked through seasons of significant fear. But it's debilitating. It binds you up. Faith in God will set you free. It'll turn your negative what-ifs into faith-filled what-ifs. Okay, let's play the what-if game. But instead of playing it like, what if we die? And what if we lose the house? And what if that relationship is never restored? And what if this happens? What if that happens? All these negative things. Let's play the what-if game only fueled by faith. What if God brings us into this exceedingly good land flowing with milk and honey? What if everything goes well? What if it's a stunning victory? What if our wives and children enjoy the fat of the land for generations? What if God fulfills every one of his promises? What if God has a purpose even in the mess? And what if your breakthrough is right around the corner? Let's play the what if game like that. Listen to your what ifs. Listen to your what ifs. Are they rooted in fear or are they rooted in faith? Unbelief is rooted in fear. Number three, unbelief is rebellion against God. Unbelief is rebellion against God. Look at Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 12 again. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Now look at this, only do not rebel against the Lord. And don't fear the people of the land for their bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, this is God speaking, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. It says, because they don't believe me, it says they're rebelling. Verse nine says they rebel against the Lord in unbelief. Verse 11, God himself says, well, how long will they despise me? Unbelief, is like, it's like rebelling against God, despising God. God, God took their unbelief personally. It's like you, when you when you dis, when I promise you something and you can't and you don't take that to the bank, you question my word as if I as if I'm not trustworthy or as if I'm not powerful or good enough to do what I've promised to do. That is a form of rebellion. That is dis, that is that is a, a way to despise me. Look at Numbers chapter fourteen verses twenty through thirty five. Then the Lord said, again, this is the Lord speaking. I have pardoned according to your word. I'll pardon them. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled. Sorry. 
Truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and he's followed me fully. I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you've rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. We talk about how the journey from the Red Sea to the Promised Land, some scholars say, was like an 11-day journey. And yet, it took them 40 years. They circled around that wilderness 40 years. Why? This is why. 11-day journey that could have been in that Promised Land. He says, one year for each day that you spied out the land. You went into that land and you looked at it for 40 days and you came back and contradicted my word and challenged my power and authority. And because of that, one year for every day that you were spying out the land, 40 years, you will wander in this wilderness because of unbelief. Verse 22 says, they put the Lord to the test. They tested God and they disobeyed him. Verse 23, there's that phrase again. It says they despised him by disbelieving him. Verses 27 and 29, three times, four times, it says they grumbled against the Lord. And he says, I've heard the grumblings by which they grumbled against me. Verse 35, it says they gathered together against God. So this is a powerfully strong point, but it's right here in the text, and so we need to see it, okay? The unbelief of this kind is rebellion against God. It is a direct affront to his word and to his power and to his character. It is to reject and despise and grumble and turn against him. That is when God speaks and we say, no, it's something else. That is rebellion against God. It's no small thing. Unbelief is no small thing. We shouldn't pet our unbelief. We shouldn't make friends with our unbelief and embrace our unbelief as many decide to teach nowadays. Listen, of course every one of us struggles with unbelief. Every one of us struggles with unbelief. There's a great story 
I believe it's Mark chapter 9. I could be wrong about that. But in Mark chapter 9, there's this great story about this father who has a son who, who's, who's really struggling. I, I, you know, he has demons that are thrown into the, throwing him into the fire, causing convulsions, all kinds of stuff. The disciples couldn't cast him out. Jesus comes. And the father says, can you, can you heal him? Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And here's what the father says. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord. Help. That means I, I believe, but I'm kind of wrestling with it. I'm kind of wrestling with belief. It's hard, man. It's, sometimes I struggle. And so many people have taken that story and they say, see, it's cool to stay in unbelief. Like it's cool to embrace your doubts. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is what he asked Jesus to do with his unbelief. I, yeah, I have moments of unbelief. Help me with that. Help my unbelief. Of course you're going to wrestle with unbelief. You're not human if you don't. What do we do with it when we see it, when we find it in ourselves? We go, Jesus, help me with this unbelief. Help me to believe you. Help me to believe in your word. Help me to believe in your promise. Help me to believe in your truth. But by all means, help me to never contradict it or get into unbelief or despise you or grumble against you. Or pretend that you're not able to perform what you've promised. Or that you don't mean what you've spoken. It's no small thing. When we see unbelief in ourselves, it's okay. It's there. We should just ask Jesus to strengthen us in our faith and help us with our unbelief. Number four, unbelief is contagious. Unbelief is contagious. Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 through chapter 14, verse 2. Numbers 13, 32 through 14, 2. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. And they said, the land which we've gone to spy it out as a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and we seemed that way to them. Now look, at, after this report, what happened? Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Ten people brought a bad report, and it caused all the congregation to lose heart and weep. And all the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, wish we'd died in the land of Egypt or died in the wilderness. Ten people started to come. Do you know how many people were among the Israelites at this time? I don't know the number, but it's massive. They were like a moving city. Okay? Ten people started to contradict God's word of promise. And the whole congregation started to disbelieve. Look at Numbers chapter 14, verses 36 through 38. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned, and look at this, they returned and made all the congregation grumble against him. It, it holds them responsible. It says they made the whole congregation grumble against him by bringing a bad report about the land. Listen, was it a problem that these people disbelieved God? Yes, that was a huge problem. When God had said this they, and they said otherwise, that's a huge problem. But the major problem was that these men had caused others to lose faith. 
Their unbelief spread like a plague and caused an entire generation of Israelites to miss out on the promised land. Their lack of faith was destructive to themselves and to others. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have seen this too many times. This is one of the greatest things that grieves my heart in in this day. As I have personally seen this more times than I can count now. People who have been impacted and had their faith devastated by the cynical unbelief and grumbling and influence of professing Christians who speak false things about God. The fruit of their influence has been devastating to the faith of many. And God does not take it lightly. When one person comes and begins to contradict God's word and causes others to doubt and to lose faith and to slip away from the Lord, God does not take that lightly. God responds so strongly to them because unbelief is so destructive because it spreads like wildfire. And so this is the first example. It's the first of seven. It's just the first example that Jude gives the church when he says, listen, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because certain people have crept in among you who are speaking things that are contrary to the truth of God's word. And they're just like those ten spies who came back and contradicted God's word and caused people to disbelieve. And their judgment was severe. So let me remind you of what happened to them. Be on guard. This warning left an imprint on generations of believers. Obviously left an imprint on Jude. And it should leave an imprint on us. Obviously, Jude was impacted by it, but so was Paul, who mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. If you want to jot that down and read that later, Paul mentions this event. 1 Corinthians 10, 5 through 11. And it made an impact on the writer of the book of Hebrews. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 2. Take care, brothers. Be careful. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like in the rebellion. What is he talking about? What is he talking about the rebellion? Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is, they heard the same message we've heard, but it didn't do them any good. Why? Because they didn't have faith. 
They didn't believe God when he spoke. So how can we heed this warning and apply this to our lives? Heavy word, I admit. It's a heavy word to me, okay? You just kind of threw the hammer this morning, okay? But how can we apply this warning to our lives? What are practical takeaways for us? Let me quickly, and I mean quickly, I will do it quickly. Let me quickly give you three applications. Number one, choose faith over fear. Choose faith over fear. Guys, be like Caleb and Joshua. Be like Caleb and Joshua. They saw the same giant people and well-fortified cities, didn't they? Twelve people went into that land, and they all saw the same thing. Caleb and Joshua saw giant people and large, well-fortified cities too. But they chose faith in God's word over fear of man. When other people start speaking reports that contradict the word of God, don't let those reports cause you to lose faith. I'm not going to be infected by your unbelief. I'm going to stand in faith. Choose faith over fear. Don't, don't live in the prison of fear. It's a prison. Man, life is a vapor. It's so short. Do not spend your days in bondage of fear. Be set free from that. Is bad stuff going to happen? Yep. We would promise it's going to happen. Does our fear and stress and anxiety about it make it not happen? No. It just takes our good moments and makes them stressful. And then our bad moments come as they, as they will. And then we're out of that bad moment. We start stressing about the potential next bad moment. And so it's, so it's bad moment, stress. Bad moment, stress. Why not faith and then bad stuff happen? And we even respond to that in faith. Why not just faith? Stand strong in the faith. Build your faith. Block out anything that detracts from your faith. Contend for the faith. Just remove everything that damages or hinders your faith. If it, if it doesn't build your faith, it's not worth your time. That's anything. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. If it doesn't build and strengthen your faith, it's not worth your time. Number two, trust in God's ability, not your own. Trust in God's ability, not your own. Remember, they were looking at themselves and their lack of resources or lack of ability. And that's when they started to doubt and contradict God's word. Don't do that. If God speaks something to you, a promise through his word, or speaks something in your heart that, that doesn't contradict his word, if God just makes a promise to you or speaks to you through his word, don't look at yourself to fulfill it. Don't look at your ability to do what only God can do. Don't trust in your ability or lack thereof. Don't trust in your limitations or your weaknesses or your strengths. Don't trust in your gifts. If God speaks something to you, don't think, oh yeah, of course that makes sense because I'm gifted in that area. No, it's not going to happen because of your gifts or your strengths. If God speaks something and it's going to happen, it's only going to happen because God makes it happen. So don't trust in your own ability. Trust in God's ability to fulfill his promises. You're not called to have faith in yourself. You're called to have faith in God and in his word and in his ability. Number three, don't rely on past mercies. 
The Israelites had experienced the tremendous favor of God. They had seen him perform miracles and supernaturally provide for them in the wilderness. They'd made it all the way from slavery to the very edge of the promised land, but they didn't finish well. In 2 Timothy, Paul the Apostle talks about finishing our race. He says, finish the race. We have to stay strong until the end. Contend for the faith until your very last breath, guys. Don't ever quit contending for the faith. Contend for the faith and build up your faith and speak faith and live by faith until your very last breath. I love Hebrews 11 because it talks about all these people who did all these amazing things by faith. By faith they subdued kingdoms and shut the mouths of lions and women received their dead back to life and all these things, amazing things happened by faith. It says some were sawn in two and they were destitute and they wandered about in caves and holes. They were homeless. They had all this stuff happen. It says these all died in faith. Even though some people experienced really difficult, hard, terrible things, they died. They took their last breath in faith and you know what that means? They win. If every moment from here until I take my last breath and I'm face to face with my creator is a moment of struggle, it's going to seem as nothing when I'm face to face with him. And every bit of sorrow and struggle and suffering and tears are gone. So fight for the faith every breath that you have for every moment of your life until your very last breath. And I promise you, you will not be ashamed. You will not be sorry that you spent your life contending for the faith no matter your circumstances. You will take that last breath here, you're very first in the presence of God, and say, ah, it was all worth it. We have to stay strong until the end. Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hold firm till the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Glasgow minister George Johnstone Jeffrey tells a story of a great man who absolutely refused to have his biography written before his death. And here's why. People wanted to write his biography, and he's like, nope, not until I'm dead. You write it after I'm dead. And here's why. He said, I've seen too many men fall out on the last lap. I've seen too many men fall out on the last lap. Guys, don't fall out on the last lap. Your, your beginning may have stuttered and struggled and whatever. I don't know where you're at. You may be in a present moment of struggle. Finish strong. Finish strong. Wherever you've been before now, you can't change a thing. You can't change a thing about your faith or lack of faith or sins or struggles. You can't change any of it. You can't change. And get, let me let you in newsflash. You're going to blow it again too. Okay? When you blow it again, man, get up, dust yourself off, and press forward in faith. Contend for the faith. Build yourself up in the faith and do it until your last breath. Hold firm to the end. Do not fall out on the last lap. John Wesley, famous uh, revival preacher, warned, let no one presume on past mercies as if they were out of danger. In his dream, uh, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he had a dream, and he says, even in this dream, he saw that even from just outside the gates of heaven, there was a path to hell. Stand in faith. 
Live by faith, contend for the faith, stay the course, finish strong. Maybe you can't do that in your own ability. So back to number two, trust in God's ability, not your own. Choose faith over fear. Don't rely on past mercies and trust in God's ability to keep you firm to the end. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this challenge this morning. Thank you for this word. I do pray that it, even though it's challenging, that it would strengthen and comfort us, Lord. If we have been weak, I know I needed to hear so much of this this week, Lord, that you have reached in even this week and spoken personally to me about areas of my life where my faith needs to be strengthened, where I've slipped into unintentionally slipped into areas of unbelief, God. And I just pray that you would strengthen me in the faith and build me up in the faith. And I pray the same for these precious ones here today, God, that you would strengthen every one of their faith, God. Build them up. Build them up in the faith, God. Keep them strong. Help them to not operate out of fear, but operate in faith. Help them, God to trust in your word and in your ability and in your character. Help them to understand, God, that your mercies are new every morning, that we don't even have to rely on past mercies because your mercies are new every morning. And there's mercy right now for us, God. And we step in it to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.